Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The oil in the Gulf threatens an entire floating ecosystem, the tiny but vital creatures riding the currents on mats of sargassum weed. Sargassum almost acts like a sponge. It just soaks up the oil, and the sargassum is relatively delicate. Uh, Once the oil hits it, it'll essentially suffocate the sargassum, and it will kill it. The web of life depending on this seaweed may be dying, too. And we travel to Soylandia, the Cerrado of Brazil, where the tropical savanna has been transformed into fields of soy. Several things happened, and they all came together as what I guess one could call a positive, perfect storm. And from then on, soybeans just swept across the Cejado like wildfire. What soy's success means for Brazil's forests. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. OBP might finally have a handle on the flow of oil into the Gulf, but that hasn't kept the oil from spilling over into politics. Midterm elections are approaching, control of Congress is on the line, and the oil disaster is quickly becoming a campaign issue. Thanks partly to this one moment. I apologize. Texas Republican Congressman Joe Barton apologized to BP CEO Tony Hayward for the administration's efforts to make the company pay for damages. Democrats quickly seized the political moment. And now, where we once had mudslinging in elections, we have oil slinging. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj is on Capitol Hill tracking how the spill is being spun in the campaigns. Hello, Mitra. Hi, Jeff. So in what races do you see this issue coming up? Well, it's been interesting. You'd expect this bill to be a big issue in Gulf states like Louisiana, where Republican Senator David Bitter is being accused of being too friendly with the, with the oil industry, and in Florida, where Governor Charlie Crist recently changed his mind and is opposing offshore drilling in his run for the Senate. But the oil spill is surfacing even in races hundreds of miles from the Gulf Coast. Like where? Well, like Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Missouri... Democrats are trying hard to paint the Republican Party as representing oil interests, and some have even taken to calling the GOP the BOP, or Big Oil Party. Mm -hmm. I saw uh, the Democratic National Committee has this new website they call BP Republicans. Right. And Joe Barton's apology to Tony Hayward is still a favorite target for Democrats. This is uh, President Obama invoking it at a campaign event in Missouri. No. (laughs) He didn't say that. But he did. Because they don't think in terms of representing ordinary folks. That's not that's not their orientation. So that that's the choice that we face in this election. So the president clearly trying to get some mileage out of that. Uh, Who's he campaigning for there? That was a stump speech for Democrat Robin Carnahan. She's up against Congressman Roy Blunt for the Missouri Senate seat. And uh, she's launched some controversial ads against him. 
Whoa, that, that sounds creepy. <laughs> yeah, the ad mimics the post-apocalyptic horror movie 28 Days Later. And you, uh, you see images of the Deepwater Horizon explosion, the cleanup, and catch glimpses of a Republican opponent making a speech, which kind of leaves viewers with the impression that he doesn't want BP to pay for the spill. And is that an accurate charge against Congressman Blunt? No. Uh, the website factcheck.org concluded that that doesn't represent his views at all. But Carnahan's campaign still points to Blunt's campaign contributions from oil and gas. In the past year, those added up to $130,000, more than any other member of the House Energy Committee, even more than Barton. So that's what the Democrats are, are doing with this. How are Republicans handling this bill? Well, they do like to point out that candidate Obama took more money from BP than any other candidate last time around. And they want to talk about oil, too. They just want to tell a different story with it. They say the administration hasn't done enough to respond to this bill. The Republican National Committee recently came out with an oil spill website of its own, Play Golf or Save the Golf. If you go to it, you see a picture of the president on a golf course, and you're invited to build your own top five list of reasons why you should be angry uh, with the president. (laughs) And are uh, Republican candidates uh, picking up on those talking points? Yeah. In Florida, the Republicans pick for Senate Marco Rubio was recently quoted saying the administration is guilty of insanity and incompetence in responding to the oil spill. And many Republicans have tried to distance themselves from Representative Barton's apology, but others are still openly critical of the pressure the administration has been putting on BP. Like in Kentucky, Republican Senate candidate Rand Paul said it's uh, un-American. And former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich had this to say as he was campaigning for congressional candidate Brad Zahn in Iowa. When, when the Secretary of the Interior said that they were going to put their boot on the neck of BP, I frankly thought he should be forced to resign that day because Americans... Any government official who believes they can put their boot on one neck believes they can put their boot on your neck. And that is fundamentally antithetical to the American model. Hmm. So what do you think, Mitra? Is any of this uh, gaining traction with voters? Is this going to make a a difference in the midterm elections? You know, it's really hard to say. I, I think a lot depends on just how the cleanup goes and whether or not this will still be making headlines when elections really get started in the fall. I called up political strategist Dan Gerstein to see what he thinks. He worked on Joe Lieberman's successful Senate run as independent in 2006. I don't think it's a win for anyone in large part just because no one has looked good. The government has not responded well, at least that's the way the, the public perceives it. And there's, there's no vindication certainly for the Republican anti-regulatory, anti-governmental mode these days. Christine says that the spill probably won't be a game changer in politics or policy, but I think clearly Democrats want to make Republican ties to oil money toxic. And I think Republicans are trying hard to show that the Obama administration came up short in its response to the spill. So it'll be interesting to see what, what actually happens in November. Mitra Taj, thanks very much. Thank you, Jeff. Mitra Taj is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. The Sargasso Sea is fixed in nautical lore. It's that patch of calm water near the Caribbean where sargassum seaweed collects in vast mats. But most of the sargassum of the Sargasso Sea really comes from the Gulf of Mexico, where the brown algae with little pea-sized air pockets grows like crazy. And it's there in the Gulf that marine scientist Bob Shipp is anxiously monitoring the sargassum weed that is now mixed with BP's oil. 
Professor Ship teaches at the University of South Alabama, where he studies how the sargassum supports an entire ecosystem. The Gulf has the second largest concentration of sargassum of any ocean in the world. A fair amount of it washes out through the Straits of Florida on the Gulf Stream and ends up in the Sargasso Sea in the Atlantic Ocean off the east coast of the United States. Well, what is it about the Gulf that makes it produce so much of this stuff? One has to speculate it's just the environment. It's a combination of high salinity, clear water, and yet enough nutrients in the water to support the proliferation of the sargassum. It's just the ideal condition for it, at least until the oil hit. So what does this mean if the oil is now mixed in with the sargassum? Well, it's unfortunate because sargassum almost acts like a sponge. It just soaks up the oil. And the sargassum is relatively delicate. Uh, Once the oil hits it, it'll block out sunlight. It'll essentially suffocate the sargassum, and it will kill it. And when it does, it kills all the biota, all the life that is dependent on the sargassum, and there's a lot of that. Well, tell me about the uh, other species in the Gulf that depend on sargassum. I think the best analogy is to think of the sargassum the same way one would think of marshes and seagrasses in estuaries. A sargassum is a major, major habitat. It provides cover for literally hundreds of species, not just fin fishes, but crustaceans and other organisms as well. If you run a camera up under sargassum, you just see a plethora of different species. One of my colleagues recently sampled some sargassum and a whole vial full of larval bluefin tuna came out. So many species lay their eggs on sargassum. Many species depend on it for forage, for cover, especially in the early life phases. The highly migratory species like the tunas and the billfish and the dolphin fish, they all depend on that sargassum the same way that nearshore our blue crabs and flounders depend on seagrasses. What's the likely impact on those other species that depend on this little floating ecosystem? They're totally dependent on it. If the sargassum goes, they go. Now, fortunately, only about a third of the Gulf has been impacted by the oil, so there are vast areas of sargassum that are untouched in the Gulf, but for those areas that have the sargassum covered with oil, it's going to take quite a long time for the other areas of sargassum to come back and replenish those areas of the Gulf that have lost their sargassum. Unfortunately, species like the bluefin tuna, for example, they don't spawn Gulf-wide. They spawn in very selected areas, and so the sargassum that is lost is also going to cause the loss uh, of that whole year class of, of bluefin tuna and other species as well. How did you uh, end up studying this weed anyway? Uh, Those of us who are fisheries biologists are well aware of how important the sargassum is. As soon as this spill became public, one of the first things we did was send vessels out sampling the sargassum that has not been impacted, so we have a baseline. We wanted to quantify the populations in the unimpacted sargassum, so when it did become impacted, we could make those comparisons. And what have you been able to quantify thus far in, by way of, of impact, comparing it to, to the baseline data you collected? What do we know about uh, just how bad it is? Well, we've taken a number of sargassum samples that do have the oil in it. Most of the species are absent if the sargassum has oil. Some of the other species are confusing the oil globs for sargassum, and they're trying to 
hide in the oil globs, which, of course, renders them fatal in the long run. We don't have real strong numbers right yet, but we will when the, when this is all said and done. Are there parallels in earlier uh, spills or oil incidents that uh, might give us some indication as to what to expect by way of uh, impact here? Well, you know, the first one thinks about is, is Valdez, and these many years later, 20-some years later, several species have never recovered in, in the Valdez area because of the impact on the habitat. Uh, the sardines, for example, the Pacific sardines, which are dependent on vegetation in Valdez, never recovered. They never came back because that habitat never came back. I think the parallel here is with the sargassum. It will eventually come back, and when it does, these species will probably recover as well. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen next year. It's going to take a number of years for it to recover. Professor Bob Shipp at University of South Alabama, thank you very much. Oh, you're most welcome. I appreciate your having me on. Just ahead, converting Brazil's savanna scrubland into the most productive soy fields on Earth. It was a wasteland. It was a giant wasteland. And the conclusion was that the Seattle had no future for commercial agriculture. That was in the mid-60s. The unexpected bonanza and unanticipated consequences of soy farming in Brazil. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Agriculture experts call the soybean a miracle crop. It's used in thousands of products, from tofu to biofuels. Most goes to feed farm animals. The United States is the number one grower, but not for long. Soybean is booming in Brazil, where this year's harvest was a record breaker. Market analysts expect Brazil will soon be the world's leading producer. Just two generations ago, soybean farming on this scale in Brazil was unthinkable. Now, critics wonder if it's unsustainable. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman traveled to ground zero of Brazil's soy revolution to find out. Mato Grosso is twice as large as California, but there are only about half a dozen paved two-lane highways in the entire state. Most roads are dark red dirt and deeply rutted like this one, carved from the plateau frontier in the center of Brazil. This is Sahado country. In Portuguese, Cerrado means inaccessible or closed. Here we have a typical Cerrado vegetation, which is kind of a scrub land. Biologist Marco Lima serves as guide and driver as we travel through this remote, rugged region. And you travel the next at least 1,200 miles going north, that's a vegetation you're going to find. The Cerrado is a tropical savanna, a complex mosaic of vegetation, closed canopy forests, vast grasslands and stunted, twisted trees. But looks are deceiving. Biologically, Brazil's Cerrado scrubland is the richest savanna on the planet and today one of the most threatened. The ecosystem is home to 10,000 species of plants, half found only here. There are 200 species of mammals and the place is a birder's paradise filled with macaws, parakeets and vultures. And in the many Amazon River tributaries, marine life of all fin and stripe, peacock bass, pink river dolphin, and piranha. Half the year, the forest's torrential rains turn Mato Grosso's dirt roads into red rivers of mud. 
The rest of the year, the land bakes in the tropical sun. The Tejado in this native state is extremely hostile. Phil Warnken literally wrote the book about farming in the Sahado. The development and growth of Brazil's soybean industry is an off-sided classic. Born and raised on a Kansas farm, Warnken was one of the first to investigate whether the ancient Sahado could be converted from scrub savanna into cropland. It was a wasteland. It was a giant wasteland. I first lived in Brazil in the mid-60s and um, was part of a study of the future potential of the Cejado. The conclusion of that team that was supported by the Rockefeller Foundation, first-class Blue Ribbon team, the conclusion was that the Cejado had no future for commercial agriculture. That was in the mid-60s. Today, the sound of the BR-163 tells a different story. The BR-163 is better known as Brazil's soybean highway. The two-lane road runs from Cuiabá, the capital city in the center of Mato Grosso, 1,200 miles north to a port on the Amazon. Much of the road is unpaved and often impassable, but here it's been surfaced. Trucks, trucks, and trucks. They're like mosquitoes, you know? During the soybean harvest season, 9,000 trucks a day, one every six seconds, pass here hauling soy from Brazil's breadbasket to a world with a growing appetite for the oil and protein-rich bean. Since 1985, global demand for soy has doubled, and farmers in Mato Grosso have more than kept pace. Soy output here has quadrupled. In less than 40 years, Mato Grosso has undergone an agricultural revolution, the likes of which the world has never seen. The remote Sahara, once considered an agricultural wasteland, has been converted from scrub savanna into a vast ocean of soy, corn, and cotton. It's the result of a remarkable convergence of scientific breakthroughs and sheer luck. Again, soy expert Phil Wangren. Several things happened, and they all came together as what I guess one could call a positive perfect storm. And from then on, soybeans have swept across the Cejado like wildfire. The first thing that had to happen in order to grow the miracle soybean crop in this tropical climate was the development of what you might call a magic seed. For decades, Brazilian and American scientists crossbred generations of soy plants before finally creating a seed that could thrive in the hot savanna. But the new seed also needed the right soil. The ancient Sahado soil is deep, which is great for soybean roots, but over the ages, torrential rains have worn and weathered the landscape. Over the 50 million years, all of the soluble nutrients such as nitrogen, calcium, magnesium have long, long ago been washed to the sea. The Sahado soil was too acidic and loaded with toxic aluminum. And even the new soy seed couldn't root in the poor soil. But then, says Phil Wangren, Brazil hit pay dirt. They're just unlimited uh, limestone there. It would last (laughs) for an eternity. Miners found vast deposits of acid-neutralizing limestone conveniently located right in the middle of Mato Grosso. Ooh, it is dusty. Look at that. The dust is covered. (laughs) Looks like snow. The wind, white and powdery, swirls at an open pit mine near the town of Cáceres, where a mountain of limestone was found on a hillside. This is the primary system. Eugenio Castingi, production manager of the mine, shows off the machinery. That's where we crush the stones. Workers mine 800 tons of limestone a day here. At $10 a ton, it's cheap, says the manager. 
Yeah, here in the state of Mato Grosso, without the help of limestone, you wouldn't be seeing so much uh, agricultural production around. Limestone turned the nutritionally poor land into soil suited for soybean. The discovery transformed the Sahado, Mato Grosso, and Phil Wangren. He founded Ag Brazil, advising investors from around the world interested in putting down roots in the dirt-cheap Sahado. It's become what's known as Soylandia. Land speculators, squatters, and settlers also rushed in. Marching bands commemorate the founding of the city of Aguaboa, Mato Grosso. Thirty years ago, this was a frontier backwater. The entire county had a thousand people. Today, the population has exploded 25-fold. Aguaboa is a prosperous city boasting paved roads on the cutting edge of Brazil's future. The mayor, Mauricio Tona, says settlers cleared the land of native vegetation and forests. Years ago, we slashed and burned the land. It wasn't a lack of environmental concern. It was just the way things were done. We had no environmental guidance from the government. Brazil has some of the toughest environmental laws in the world, but in this vast frontier, enforcement is weak. So non-governmental organizations have helped fill the void. Greenpeace recently renegotiated a four-year-old moratorium with international soybean traders who agree not to buy soybeans from newly deforested land in the Amazon. The deal has largely worked there. However, just south in the Sahado, deforestation has slowed but continues. Nearly half a million square miles of Mato Grosso Sahado have been slashed and burned. All this burned over here. See, it's all dead. John Carter is head of an NGO that helps soy farmers preserve their forests while increasing profits. He drives us around his ranch in the remote northeast corner of Mato Grosso. The fire blew through here. All that's our forest reserve. It's hard to tell from here, but all that burned as well. Carter is a transplanted Texan who came to the Sahado in the 1990s seeking his fate and fortune. He was astonished at what he found. Fires in the U.S. you see on TV that are 1,000 acres and the world screaming, and here you have hundreds of thousand acres of burning, and no one says peep. Scientists say the industrial-scale slashing and burning of the region has released trillions of tons of forest carbon into the atmosphere and disrupted the region's rain cycle. The Sahado is drying. Grassland fires that once could be contained now burn out of control. That's why Carter, like other Sahado farmers, is required by law to keep half his forest as reserve. So he's regrowing 2,200 acres of forest that burned down. This is five kilometers or three miles straight line that a tractor could drive to plant soybeans here, and I'll let it come back into come into compliance with the forest code. And uh, that represents around $1.1 million I threw away. Carter hopes to change the equation. His NGO, Alianza de Terra, shows farmers how to derive economic value from their standing forests. The Land Alliance helps farmers turn the carbon stored in their trees into credits companies can buy to offset their greenhouse gas emissions. Carlito Gumaris is a new member of Carter's Land Alliance. Uh This is the county, San José do Xingu. In these parts, Gumaris is known as the forest destroyer. He opens a map and points to his land. 200,000 acres just south of the Amazon on the Fontura River. I am on the Fontura River. That's an area of a where, where, that we're heavily deforested. 
The forest destroyer says his reputation is well-deserved. He cleared and cut down 100,000 acres, and he makes no apologies. I'm going to ask a not polite question. Did you contribute to that deforestation? I did something conscious of what I was doing. The forest destroyer now wants to be paid for keeping his remaining trees standing. There are no free lunches, he says, or breakfasts or dinners. See, our world doesn't live without food. We could raise our productivity three or four times more. But the thing is, will mankind be able to pay this price? Sahado farmers can boost their productivity, preserve their forests, and prevent greenhouse gas emissions, but the price is expensive. Intensive agricultural techniques and advanced technologies don't come cheap, and often there are steep, unintended environmental costs and consequences. I have to show you this. See, this was sent to me by John. Farmer Jamar Brunier is also a member of John Carter's Alianza de Terra. The Alliance sent Brunier a detailed report showing him how he can save big bucks or Brazilian hay eyes on expensive fertilizer. Here you can see what is uh, agriculture with precision. This will show us the needs of the ground in cada hectare. Per hectare, yeah. per hectare. Yeah. For example, you yeah. can see the lack of potassium yeah. in this area, which is the poorest area. So, now we're putting the right doses that what the ground needs and whatever. There's no need, we don't put anything. To economize on fertilizer, prevent erosion, and keep carbon locked in the soil, Sahado soy growers like Brunier are encouraged to use the no-till farming method. Instead of tilling the land, they leave the remnants of the previous season on the ground to enrich the soil. But bugs feast on past harvests, and no-till has led to a threefold increase in pesticide sales in just six years. Today, Brazil is the largest user of pesticides in the world. Professor Alexander Ultramari studies the use of agricultural pesticides at the State University of Mato Grosso. He says over the past generation, cases of cancer have doubled in Mato Grosso compared to the rest of Brazil, and birth defects have tripled. Basically, when you talk about the cancer, what do you see? You see people, especially with cancer on their digestive systems, for example, the intestines, okay? And also when you talk about malformation, at the university hospital here, we've been seeing lots of children with malformation, like born without legs, arms, hands. Many different kinds of malformation. No, no, no legs, no arm, even brainless. Sem cérebro. You think it's from these agrotoxins? Não, talvez 100% dos casos. You know, I'm not going to say that all the 100% of the cases will be, but definitely a big, big major piece of it. Yes. Many of those cases can be found among indigenous people in the Sahara. In 2006, members of the Jvante tribe blocked a bridge, preventing soy trucks from crossing the Rio des Morches, the river of death. It was a tense but peaceful one-day protest against industrial soy farmers in the area. The Jvante charged the pesticides used on soy fields were running onto tribal lands and into the river of death. 
A video, Owners of the Water, documents the demonstration and damage to the environment. Women from all Javante communities are noticing so much pollution in the river. It's really bad. This pollution is destroying the water we use for cooking. If the river of death dies, say the Shvante, we all die. The Shvante aren't the only ones protesting. In 2004, China, Brazil's largest customer for soybeans, temporarily suspended shipments, charging they were contaminated with dangerous levels of banned pesticides. So once again, Brazilian farmers turned to agricultural science and the promise of a new soy seed. To those who say it's not good for the environment, I'd say we should use biotechnology even more. Until 2004, it was illegal to sell genetically modified soybean seed in Brazil. But today, companies like Syngenta and Monsanto advertise heavily in Mato Grosso farm country. Monsanto has engineered a seed designed to grow even when dosed with their pesticide Roundup. Monsanto calls the transgenic seed Roundup Ready and claims the pesticide is safe. Soy farmer Jamar Brunier recently switched to the new biotech seed. How does it work for you? Good? Through research we've done, the transgenic agriculture is going to be cleaner because we're going to be using much less pesticides. So it's going to be just better. It's going to be way less contamination in the ground and in the waters, in the water systems. The seed will cost him more. But you see, it will cost much cheaper because the royalties we pay to Monsanto is way cheaper than what the pesticide costs. That's in the short term. But increasingly, soy farmers are disappointed with yields from genetically modified seeds. New superweeds that are resistant to Roundup are growing on their fields. So Monsanto has created yet another generation of biotech seed, Roundup Ready 2, which can tolerate even stronger doses of pesticide. A road grader repairs a soy highway washed out by torrential rains. Brazil is rapidly paving a path through the Sahado frontier to its future. The government recently launched the Accelerated Growth Program to speed soy to the market, spending tens of billions of dollars on new roads and freight trains. China is also paying to construct a road over the Andes to take soy from the Sahado to ports on the Pacific. It's an ambitious, audacious program that will be needed to keep pace with Brazil's plan to increase soy production by 50% in the coming decade. Again, Phil Warnkin of Ag Brazil. Brazil has a massive, massive frontier that remains to be opened. Brazil can open more land than the United States has under production at the current time. In the future, Brazil will be the superpower of agriculture, and it already is right now. Brazil is the superpower of world agriculture. For five centuries, colonial exploiters and new world explorers came to Brazil's Sahado searching for lost cities of gold. But today, in the harsh frontier of Mato Grosso, it's green gold that the world seeks, fields of soybean that only seem to go on forever in what is left of the biologically richest savanna on the planet. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Gellerman.
LOE's Bobby Bascom helped produce our story. For pictures and more, visit our website, LOE.org. up, we heard about the seaweed of the Sargasso, now the story of the plastics in the Sargasso trash. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI. Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Just ahead, the wide Sargasso Sea is becoming a wide plastic pool. But first, this note on emerging science from Amanda Martinez. South American potato farmers may soon be able to double their yields. And all it took was a closer look at their biggest nemesis, the Guatemalan potato moth. A potato infested with moth larvae is not a pretty sight. The tiny, rust-colored caterpillars burrow their way through the tuber's flesh, leaving a trail of brown rot in their wake. But while the infested spud's fate may be sealed, other uninfected potatoes on the same plant appear to grow much larger. Scientists at Cornell University believe the source of these super spuds is the larvae's saliva. Compounds in the saliva are thought to kick the plant's photosynthesis into overdrive. The reason, researchers believe, is damage control. The infected plant sucks in additional carbon from the air, which causes it to produce more starch and bigger spuds. This, in turn, makes up for those tubers lost to the caterpillar's voracious appetite. With an increase in yield of up to two and a half times, depending on how much of the plant is affected, farmers' hopes are up. If the tuber-pumping compound can be isolated, farmers may soon be able to turn the potato moth pest from a bane into a boon. And that's this week's note on Emerging Science. I'm Amanda Martinez. The gusher in the Gulf isn't the only oil fouling the sea. Plastic trash, which is also petroleum-based, is plaguing the world's oceans in record amounts. Most of us have heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Its strange glut of plastic has been likened to a toilet that never flushes. But the North Pacific isn't the only ocean with a plastic problem. Researchers from the Sea Education Association in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, have just returned from a month-long expedition into the plastic trash of the North Atlantic. Chief Scientist Giora Proskrowski is on the phone from Bermuda, where the research ship just docked. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, tell me about the expedition. What are we doing out there? Well, we've been sampling in this region from Woods Hole to Bermuda and then to the Caribbean in the Western Atlantic for 25 years or so. And what we proposed to do was to go far east from Bermuda, where we know that plastics exist in the ocean, and try to find the eastern boundary of this region of high concentration in the ocean. And we were hoping that we'd see diminishing plastic concentrations, but what we actually saw, and actually our very easternmost surface toe, was we found the highest concentrations of plastic that have ever been observed in any of the world's oceans. How much plastic are we talking about? 
Well, so what we do typically is we put a net in the water, surface net that filters about 4,000 bathtubs worth of surface water. And what we found was that there was, in our nets that we towed for a half hour or a nautical mile, was 23,000 pieces of plastic. And these are very small fragments, the size of a, you know, a fiber, maybe a centimeter long, the thickness of a hair, or a piece of uh, just a fragment of plastic the size of a pencil eraser or smaller. And we found 23,000 of those in our net tow, which turns out to be 26 million pieces of plastic per square kilometer. That's astounding. And that's discounting all the macro debris, the larger debris that we saw on that day, which was sort of a dispiriting day, although it was very exciting for you know, our expedition, all of a sudden we got you know, very flat water and we saw just lots of large floating debris. And all of a sudden our nets were in the water and we just got massive, it was like sand drifts of plastic in our sieves where we processed them. It was, it was pretty upsetting. And this is a record? I believe so. SEA has been doing this research for 25 years, and we have, this is 100 times more than we've ever got in any of our net tows. Uh, I know there was an expedition out in the Pacific last year, and I think they got, you know, a million or four million was their highest per square kilometer. So using that same metric, this was still about 10 times more than, than what anybody's ever seen. And uh, I'd always sort of thought that the Atlantic had maybe less plastic than the Pacific, and that typically, you know, that's what you hear, but... From our findings on this trip, you know, there's really not that much difference at all. Now, you've been in these trash vortex areas, as they're sometimes called, in both the the Atlantic and the Pacific. Why do these things happen where they happen? That's a good question. I think it's a very good way to learn about the Earth that we live on, and it comes down to the basic simple physics that we live on a rotating spherical body that's unevenly heated at the equator. So the sun heats the water at the equator, that air rises, it becomes less dense and rises with the humidity, and what happens is it moves north or south, and it cools a little bit, and it happens to be that it both 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south latitudes, the air starts to sink, and you get these large regional areas of high atmospheric pressure. And that's like what's known as the Bermudan High. That's uh, why it's really sunny out here today. And these regions of high pressure are associated with low winds and low currents. And so once floating debris starts to get in the ocean, they sort of drift slowly to these regions, and then they stall out because of the low winds and slow currents, and there's no really forcing to get them out of this region. They just slowly accumulate. So it's more or less in the same spot in the Pacific as it is in the Atlantic, when you look at where it is in in relation to the the equator. Yeah, exactly. So it's 30 degrees latitude, both north and south, and it's not just the North Pacific or the North Atlantic. It's the South Pacific, South Atlantic, and the Indian Ocean as well. So anywhere where there's a large ocean basin centered at 30 degrees, you'll get this same phenomenon. And I'm wondering, when you, when you haul up 23,000 pieces of plastic in a, in a single scoop, more or less, what do you think about us when you're out there looking at all that plastic and what, what we're doing to the oceans just through tiny little pieces of consumption, pieces of plastic? Yeah, the ocean's not supposed to have any plastic, and yet we were pulling it out like a, a, we were a recycling center. Yeah, it definitely forces you to confront how humans interact with the environment and how we've changed it. And I think in these days of people doubting global warming because you can't physically see it or observe it with your eyes, this is an example. And I think that's one reason why it resonates with so many people, because 
we can be 2,500 miles from land and pull out 23,000 pieces of plastic. And it is our habits of one-use consumer plastics that, that is doing this. Giora Proskowski with the Sea Education Association. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. For pictures of plastic trash in the North Atlantic and more about Sea Education Association's expedition, go to our website, loe.org. Most machines are designed to handle one particular task, say a lawnmower or a vacuum cleaner. But robots are programmable machines that can change behavior. And researchers are now developing robots that can change a lot more. Their shape, their software, and their hardware. Our story comes from the series Engineers of the New Millennium from IEEE Spectrum Magazine and the National Science Foundation. Glenn Zorpet takes us to the MIT lab working on what you might call the Transformers. Robotics engineer Daniela Roos sees a future in which robots not only do what we want, they become what we want. So that anybody can make whatever robot they need on demand, much like uh, a child might make a toy out of clay, except that now we have electronic clay where every particle of the clay has smarts and can work with other particles to make new and interesting and on-demand things. Roos and her team at the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab create self-reconfiguring robots and programmable matter. Essentially, robotic systems so smart, so flexible, they can become anything. So if robots were the size of, say, Legos, what would you build? You can tell your bag of Legos, make me a boat, and then disassemble and make me a plane, and then disassemble and make me a horse, and the Lego blocks would be able to do that without the human input. Okay, so this is a demonstration of our system. And what's happening here is there are five phases in this process. In this Kyle Gilpin designed the lab's first system of programmable matter by sculpting. It's a collection of identical robotic cubes, each four centimeters wide, and these cubes are built and programmed to connect and communicate with each other to form things. Gilpin tells them what to do by sculpting the shape he wants on his computer. So we can say we want these modules in the structure and these modules out of the structure. And once we've sculpted on the computer screen, the information is then transferred back to the structure, distributed within the structure, and then the modules that aren't supposed to be a part of that goal shape break off and peel off like you'd peel the layers of an onion off, and they fall away, and you're left with the structure that you sculpted on the computer screen. Gilpin recently downsized his original design, and the cubes are now just one centimeter wide. The smaller they make these robotic cubes, or programmable matter, the more flexible they are to create different shapes. They're already smaller than Legos, but the goal is for them to be no bigger than a grain of sand. The way that I think of this system is we have a a bag of this smart sand, and it's kind of the universal toolkit. So say you're a scientists at South Pole over the winter and there's no way of getting supplies in and out and you need a specific tool so you can convey that information to your bag of smart sand, shake it up, the modules in the bag bond together and unbond selectively. Once that process is done, which should be quick, you reach in, you can grab your wrench or your screwdriver or whatever tool it is you've made, use that tool. When you're done with it, you can put it back into the bag, it disintegrates and then you can repeat the process for something else. 
One of the major challenges in creating self-reconfiguring robotic systems and programmable matter is finding construction materials. If you make a couch out of these modules, it's going to have a lot of corners. It's not going to be very comfortable until we can really get the fabrication to produce millimeter-scale objects. Another goal is to make self-reconfiguring robots smart enough to adapt to their environment or task without human guidance. For instance, if the robot's mission is to travel long distance cross-country and the robot arrives in front of the tunnel, the robot should figure out that the best way to do at this point is to squeeze through the tunnel in the form of a snake. Roos says such robots could be sent into dangerous situations or remote regions of the planet to carry out missions. The sky is literally the limit. It's a very exciting time. I think that the age of robotics is really upon us, and I really think that robotics is the next disruptive technology. So we will see great impact in everyday life because of advances in how we make machines and how we control them. Glenn Zorpet's story was reported by Lori Howell for the series Engineers of the New Millennium, Robots for Real, a co-production of IEEE Spectrum Magazine and the Directorate of Engineering for the National Science Foundation. Since its beginnings, rap music has tackled the social issues in the cities that gave rise to the musical form. For instance, the message from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five in 1982. Broken glass everywhere, people pissing on the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise, got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. But nearly 30 years later, garbage, pollution, and unemployment are still part of rap's message. And that's given rise to a small but growing genre of green hip-hop. Living on Earth and Planet Harmony's Ike Sris Kanjaranja reports. Young Jeezy and Nas wrote one of the most recognizable hip-hop anthems of 2008. The election of President Barack Obama is still being celebrated by hip-hop artists. Now, it's a different color getting the praise. Ayana Mead is an environmental writer researching the growing trend of green hip-hop. Yeah, it's a small genre. You may not hear it on some of the pop radio stations in New York uh, that play hip-hop, maybe your 97.1s or on your BETs. But there are a few people who, I don't know if they exclusively rap about green issues, but they exist. So who do you see taking up this Green Lantern? Marquise Bryant is definitely a star already. He organizes on his campus and his community, um, teaching other young folks about green issues. And then, of course, he moonlights also as, as a rapper, and, and his, uh, his stage name is, is Do That, which we probably all should do, you know, do that, do that with the green movement. Do that, got a message for the hood. It's time to go green, we gotta go green. The food ain't fresh and the air ain't clean from the hood to the bird. Marquis Doodat Bryant has made a name for himself as a green rapper, but he isn't thrilled with the label. Actually, actually, no. I consider myself to be a rapper that just happens to be an eco-conscious individual. He's an Oakland native, but his ecological awakening came while he was living in Vallejo. And while I was staying in Vallejo, California, we stay right next to a Chevron refinery. And so as far as the fumes and 
you know, it actually contributes to the asthma race in the community. And I just felt that it was very important to speak on it because a lot of us, especially in the hood, really don't even understand where our electricity is coming from. From the hood, no refinery ain't that far. Something like my neighbor ain't doing me no favors. We need more classes, not more sales. Man, we need green jobs. We don't need no jails. So how was your song received by people in your community? It was well received. Uh, it was very funny, though, because I actually shot that video right in the hood, right on the block. Everybody was excited. And then once the song started coming on, and I'm talking about it's time to go green, it's time to go green, you know, I got a few looks like, okay, what is he talking about? Marquise may draw some funny looks, but he's hardly alone. Eco-conscious songs have slowly been making headway. From Dr. Octagon, a.k.a. Cool Keith, lamenting the loss of trees. trees, are dying. trees, are dying. trees to the Trunk Boys' promotion of tricked-out bicycles on Scraper Bike. And then there's the Dead Prez fitness plan, Be Healthy. I don't eat no meat. No dairy, no sweets, only ripe vegetables, fresh fruit and whole wheat. I'm from the These rappers and their environmentally-minded tracks have won praise from fans and activist groups. The Bay Area's Green for All and Grind for the Green and D.C.'s Hip Hop Caucus have started using rap as a vehicle for their green message. And one of the most popular performers of the year, Drake, even signed on to the Green the Block tour. But environmental writer Ayanna Mead says there's still a long way to go green rap genre is still under the underground. So if we're like looking back at hip-hop history, Chuck D called rap music the black CNN. Do you think that rappers like Marquise are bringing news to their community? Information about the green movement is information that a lot of these young people in urban communities are not aware of. Hip-hop needs to really embrace the green movement and get kids interested and engaged. I mean, look at the election of Barack Obama. Look how many kids grasped onto that because they need a movement. They wanted something to make them feel alive. I think the green movement can be that for young people today. For Living on Earth and Planet Harmony, I'm Ike Sreets Kandaraja. We only get one chance. We only get one chance. Planet Harmony welcomes all and is designed to have special appeal for young African Americans. Check out the playlist in Ike's story and join the discussion at myplanetharmony.com. That's myplanetharmony.com. The time is now, and the time is now. Standing up against the free market pollution-based economy, she decides that the solution... Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreese Kanjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Sousa. Our interns are Amanda Martinez, Megan Minor, and Amy Nin. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, 
the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Paxworld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.